0: insightful questions. We're going to move on now to our final panel of the day. As Petra says, we're talking about imbalances of power. And our first three panels have focused very much on those areas where we can see that clearly, whether it's between the average citizen and law enforcement, whether it's between workers and the sort of platforms that manage that work, or whether, as we've heard, it's against vulnerable refugees and migrants. Our final panel is called Discriminatory Surveillance and the EU Artificial Intelligence Act Towards a Rights and Justice Approach, where we're going to try and pull together the threads of everything we've heard and and come up with what we think might be sensible advice for the AI Act going forward. And I'm delighted to have joining me Sandra Chandler, one of the key movers and shakers behind today's event, a Senior Policy Advisor at European Digital Rights. Alejandro Moledo is the head of policy at the European Disability Forum and that's an umbrella organization that defends the rights of persons with disabilities and defends over 100 million people in Europe. So we need to bear in mind we are not talking about minorities here, we're small minorities, we're talking about really a huge bunch of people. Brando Benefai is a member of the European Parliament. I think Brando is having some trouble connection, Um, but he is with the S&D Group and is a rapporteur for the Internal Market Committee on the AI Act. And finally, last but not least, we're delighted to have Wojciech Miorowski, the European Data Protection Supervisor and one who has followed these discussions very, very closely. Sarah, I'm going to give you the floor first for you to reflect and set out your stall and what you think you've heard today that has been really key and interesting and where you would like to take the conversation over the next hour or so.
1: Yeah, definitely. And thank you so much, Jennifer, um, for moderating this marathon event uh, that we've had today. Many panels talking about essentially the same thing, which is structural discrimination and AI. Um, just to say also thank you to the fellow panelists and also to all of the other amazing speakers that we've here, had here today. Honestly, really, the, the ethos and what we thought along with uh, ASEPI when we tried to put together this panel is how do we have a conversation between those directly affected by these sort of sharp end, to use Petra's words, of technological discrimination, but also the people that have the power to make the decisions to change some of this. And really, that's where we would like to go today. Um, I'd like to really kick off the conversation um, to talk about the framing of AI and discrimination and how we've currently seen that question framed in the policy debate in the European level. So really so far, um, I would say that the the framing of the question of discrimination and AI has mostly been dominated by this question of bias in data sets. Um, What we've really been trying to do at European Digital Rights or EDRI is debunk this idea and say, actually, there's a much bigger and broader problem. And that is how AI is used and how that makes structural inequalities that we already see in our society worse. Um, We commissioned uh, last year a report um, by computer scientists at Technical University. University Delft uh, called Seda Gerses and Agathe Lane who looked into that topic and framing uh, a lot more and what they essentially said to us is that to truly address the question of AI and discrimination it absolutely isn't enough to talk only about biased data, data sets, algorithms and if we do that what we will do is locate the problems and solutions solely in the sphere of algorithms and data sets Um, Doing this we would shift what essentially are political questions about the deployment of technologies into the the domain of design which is mainly dominated by commercial actors and technology companies. So all of this to say I would say the first danger in this conversation about AI and discrimination is not to depoliticize the issue by focusing only on the technical nature of this technology. Uh, Instead, we really need to think about how do we shift that power and also specifically on governance solutions. And I really hope later we can talk about what some of those governance solutions are. Um, To sum up this answer, what I'd really like to say is that to the question of AI and discrimination is not really only about bad data and poorly designed algorithms, it's essentially how racialized people, migrants, queer and trans communities, the working class, people with disabilities, so all those groups of people that are already overly criminalised, monitored, discriminated against in many ways will be likely to bear the brunt of harmful and more intense surveillance. And perhaps um, as we get into the conversation, we can talk um, about what some of those more harmful use cases um, are. Thank you very much, Sarah. I'm sure we will touch on all of those things, but an hour
0: is not a very long time, so I won't take up any more of it. Alejandro, uh Tell me about the work that you're doing at the European Disability Forum in relation to AI.
2: Thank you very much, Jennifer. And first of all, I'd like to, to excuse the absence of my colleague, Meher Hakobian, who couldn't be with us today uh, due to a health uh, uh, problem that I'm replacing um, him today. So. At EDF, uh, the European Disability Forum, we've been working very closely with uh, Edry actually on the AI Act. I mean, we've been very active in the past on many of the flagship uh, proposals from the Commission on the Digital Single Market and all the digital files, trying always to ensure that uh, the perspective of persons with disabilities, as you mentioned at the beginning, 100 million, uh, people with disabilities in Europe, 15% of the total population, are actually taken into account because the way we design the technologies and also the the use that we uh, of these technologies actually define whether persons with disabilities will have actually the possibility of using this as a way to overcome the barriers that we encounter in our everyday life to access employment, education, public services, et cetera. That's why we've been very active in the past 10 years in ensuring that accessibility, for example, is a core aspect of the discussion around technology along with privacy and security and others. So pri- accessibility is definitely um, one of the core drivers of our advocacy in this regard. And more particularly on AI, there is an additional um, kind of... Um, uh, Uh, challenge that we need to address as well, which is all the cases that we've witnessed of discrimination against persons with disabilities, because in the case of AI we see the the both sides of the coin. We see the positive side because we see that artificial intelligence is used to actually improve accessibility in many cases. We can see uh, everyday examples such as automatics, uh, automatic captions, for example, for video, which are very useful for uh, those who are hard of hearing or deaf. We see also um, computer vision as well, which is very useful for those like uh, who have um, a visual disability. So we see many uh, uses of AI which are positive, but at the same time, we've seen how AI uh, obviously uh, discriminates those who are at the age of society, those those who do not comply with the kind of average user that uh, the ai system is expecting or the the intended result that the ai system is uh, um, seeking so in this regard we are working to ensure that uh, persons with disabilities will have uh, or the deployment of ai will have persons with disabilities in mind and will ensure that accessibility is incorporated we are looking very closely and and this is very important what uses of ai should be prohibited in the ai act and also how to ensure that there is redress mechanisms and there is like the possibility for the communities to be involved and uh, meaningfully uh, consulted on what kind of uses of AI will be permitted in, uh, in the EU.
0: Thank you indeed, Alejandro. We don't want to demonize all technology, and we're not anti-innovation when it's being used in the right hands for the right reasons. Um, although right now, I'm not very happy with uh, the manufacturer of Brando Benaifei's device because he's still struggling to connect. Um, we will move on to Wojciech to hear from you. Um, and the, the way that the, uh, the EDPS's role in overseeing data protection rules can be brought to bear in this area. Uh,
3: thank you, for, first of all, for the possibility to be with you in the day which seems to be devoted to the artificial intelligence in many places. Not only here, there's another conference which is going on in Brussels as well. Uh, so uh, quite a lot of things is going on. And uh, I have to say that I'm here in multiple roles, because, of course, uh, I will be speaking as a data protection authority, uh, also presenting the the opinion which has been prepared both by the EDPS and uh, my friends in the European Data Protection Board. So, somehow, I will try to present this um, very uh, typical data protection approach, but uh, also as an advisor to the Parliament and to the Council during the whole negotiation of this uh, process, uh, but also as a future regulator, because probably most probably, uh, EDPS will be responsible for regulating the things, so I'm somehow thinking about my own uh, role and the role of my successors uh, in dealing with this uh, uh, topic, and uh, what is also important, I'm a big fan of AI myself, and uh, I would say that uh, I see mainly the good uses of the AI, but as always, we have this margin, and that might be quite a big margin, which we should have a look at. And uh, most of the things which we try to advise as far as uh, uh, AI is concerned is, first of all, ask ourselves what do we really need to to, uh, uh, regulate, uh, which was not regulated yet, where are the the gaps, where are the the, the white uh, holes, Uh, what should be actually done? and uh, the, the second thing what should be the default solution and what should be an exemption and that's the part which we are very keen on as far as any kind of discriminatory use is uh, concerned i'm very happy for what i heard uh, today uh, that uh, the the, um, the that uh, the especially the civic society don't uh, tr- don't allow to be driven into the discussion about the bias as the only thing that uh, is uh, important. Of course, bias is something that we have to fight with, but we cannot uh, 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 only help to, to uh, m- make the quality of the database and the, and the, and the resources uh, better. Actually, what we should ask is, what do we want to use AI for? And these answers are not that far from the answers that we gave so far, in another field. So uh, AI then becomes uh, one of the technological solutions uh, and the users are actually the more important. So definitely we are not against the technology and we are. We, we may, however, ask what should be the, the uh, default solution, what should be the uh, exemption. And that's, for example, what happens uh, when we think about uh, remote biometric identification, which have been especially stressed in the opinion of the EDPS and EDPB, and I have to say that EDPS was quite pivotal in, in preparing this part of the, um, of the opinion. Well, the, the, the use of the remote uh, identification in public spaces is something which is important for us, but not public because of the ownership of these places, but publicly accessible. That's the most important thing that we are dealing with, because it's uh, in, in, this is direct attack on the right to privacy and direct attack to the... Uh, way that this society is actually built on. And the chilling effect here is uh, absolutely obvious, and the mass surveillance uh, uh, is is created in the most horrible way, actually, because uh, uh, we have to then think that wherever we are, we will be recognized, we may be recognized wrongly or rightly, uh, in better or, or worse quality. And deployment of the remote biometric identification in publicly accessible uh, spaces requires the setting the massive technical infrastructure. And once we start to build it, it will exist, and it will be like the the wheel that we cannot actually stop, because we will invest, so we will want to see the results of that. Even that it's not possible to provide the sufficient safeguards at the moment uh, uh, a blanket ban in my own opinion for this kind of uh, use of the art of uh, artificial intelligence for the remote biometric identification should be created. We can talk about exemptions. There might be exemplar, uh, there might be uh, situations where it makes sense to create such kind of biometric identification, but that should be exemptions from the general rule. So, uh, the the, the social scoring, the emotional uh, uh, interference, uh, maybe with, once again, with limited uh, health purposes allowed and biometric categorization that could lead to the unfair discrimination should be also banned, and uh, that is what most of the opinion is then uh, uh, about. And the use uh, of the AI uh, in uh, uh, the field of uh, criminal, justice law enforcement migration which were discussed at the previous panels uh, in our opinion should be regulated very similarly as it is at the moment uh, with the uh, with the general ai i also have uh, several doubts about the changes that were done during the legislative process though i have to say that uh, the the texts that we get from the parliament and from the council one after another are better than the previous one which means that there is a big room for improvement yeah, so the, the, the first the, the, the proposal was not actually the final one.
0: Well, thank you, Wojciech. I'm sure when we come back to talk about exemptions, we'll make the point that they must be necessary, proportionate and time limited. Uh, Brando, thank you so much for persevering and getting connected. Um, we're talking about the AI Act today. Tell us a bit about what you're seeing, what's been happening in the IMCO committee and where you expect further negotiations and the text to go.
4: Yes, thank you very much. I hope you can hear me. There were some uh, technical issues, but uh, and <laughs> it's a bit precarious. But I, I I hope you can hear me. So um, on the topic, um, I I just come uh, came back now from uh, the AI week uh, of the uh, Expo in Dubai, organized by the European Commission, and in fact, I am having a lot of the of discussions and meetings with. Uh, different stakeholders. I was earlier this month in Barcelona on the topic of the usage of AI in cities and especially in the context that you well know of surveillance, um, biometric uh, uh, surveillance, which as you know, is one of the hottest topic uh, on which we are legislating. So the discussion is now going on mainly on these points, I will just list them. Uh, the definition of AI, which obviously will entail which uh, algorithms uh, will be included or not to be covered by the legislation we are now uh, um, working on. Um, then uh, the issue of the certification. Who will certificate? Uh, so can there be self-certification for all high-risk users? or uh, should we have a um, um, third-party certification, especially for the most uh, uh, um, uh, uh, high risk users, the ones regarding fundamental rights and uh, family uh, rights and uh, and citizenship rights and everything that is uh, more uh, and health and life, so um, to at least uh, uh, have some of the excuses users that uh, could be in, um, put under a um, uh, a third-party certification context uh, instead of self-certification only. Then we have the issue of the prohibited users, uh, which is uh, um, um, uh, a very delicate issue if we think of the. Uh, biometric surveillance, the social scoring. um, And also, I need to mention the chain of responsibility. Who is responsible when you have general purpose AI and when um, you uh, have big uh, multinational businesses that then have intermediate deployers, so medium-sized businesses or small businesses, and then the users? How are the responsibilities for Uh, the um, certification and for the respect of the rules be distributed. Um, I mean, all these things are uh, under scrutiny. We will uh, uh, work for all this year for uh, having a Parliament position um, with uh, uh, the rest of the Parliament to find agreement, and then we will have to negotiate with the Council. We know that, especially when we deal with security um, and users that uh, uh, entail uh, surveillance, uh, um, uh, we have very different views with the Council already. We, know about, we, we already know that. Um, so we, we know there will be tough negotiations. Um, but uh, uh, we are ready to work for that so that we can deliver a human-centric, trustworthy AI that, let me conclude on this, that can compete uh, this ecosystem in Europe, can innovate uh, not against our values, but with our values. So we are open also to have um, um, sandboxes and spaces for experimentation, for innovation that can be more free. But we um, want to uh, be sure that we have a functioning uh, 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 legislation, so uh, all the points I, I mentioned are important so that this doesn't stay just on paper, but it becomes an effective uh, system, an effective instrument to first of all protect citizens, consumers and uh, all the vulnerable groups from uh, risks of AI. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Brando. And, uh, I'm very impressed with your perseverance while you're on the move. Um, Let's talk, we will come on to the issue of enforcement and and how that's going to look. Um, But before we get there, we need to have the right law in place. And Sarah, I'm interested to know whether, in principle, overall, you think that a risk-based approach is the right one. Sarah. You ask me?
1: Sarah, I'm asking Sarah. (laughs) Can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Uh, it's a great question. Can a risk-based uh, system deliver the sort of fundamental rights protections that we want? So initially, civil society, we really uh, adamant that actually what we need to do, if, we, if our main focus is protecting people, their fundamental rights, and particularly those of marginalized communities, what we really need to do is have that issue be the priority and have the the scale of the impact or potential impact on fundamental rights be the determining factor of how AI is is regulated. And we've seen that to some extent, especially, um, we were very happy to see that there is a list of prohibitions of the most unacceptable risk um, AI systems in the AI Act. So you, to some degree, see the risk-based system working from a fundamental rights perspective. I think now the key question is, can a risk-based system deliver it on this? Is not necessarily um, uh, only about the concept of a risk-based system. It's but what do you do when you classify something as high-risk? And then two aspects. What are the obligations, particularly on, as, as Mr. Benefe says, on users of the or deployers of high-risk AI, but also how flexible is the system? Uh, one of uh, the sort of recommendations of civil society has been considering that AI is a fast-moving te- uh, technology, there are many new systems on the market continuously, many of them tested, um, as uh, the previous panel said, on some of the most marginalized in society, mar- migrants, people with disabilities, racialized people. Then we need to actually ha- to have a system that's flexible enough to deal with these potentially new risky systems coming onto the market. And so currently uh, we can only update the head- we cannot update the headings of the high-risk annex. We cannot update the types of high-risk systems that are currently categorized in the act. That needs to be changed, and it needs to be modified so that we can do that in the future if an unacceptable or high-risk type of system actually starts to being used. That's the first thing. The second thing is, okay we classify a, 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 risk, a certain type of system as high risk, what are then the responsibilities on those using the technologies after that? Civil society had been really very clear that actually what the Act needs for it to be functional is some sort of system of obligations on the users or the deployers of high-risk AI. So pretty much all of the types of systems that we've been talking about here today in this entire event. If they are high-risk, then there needs to be some governance mechanisms put in place so that users need to do a series of sort of accountability checks before they are using these high-risk systems. Um, And one of those um, particular specific changes that we could see is an obligation on users in the AI Act to do a fundamental rights impact assessment outlining, okay, what are, what are the potential impacts of the use of this system? Is there a risk of discrimination? And most crucially, how do we as a public authority or company using this high-risk system mitigate it? Crucially, that also needs to be transparent. So the details of that fundamental rights impact assessment should be shown somewhere, should appear, uh, perhaps in the public database that the AIM um, Act already introduced. And that will be the first step al- along the way to ensuring accountability, but also ap- empowering people affected by these high-risk systems to know and potentially challenge these systems if they need to.
0: Well, Sarah, since you're mentioning impact uh, assessments, I'm I'm going to jump to Act because I know um, that just in the, in the last couple of days, the EDPS and the EDPB, gave an opinion on the extension of the COVID certificates. Now, well, it's not specifically AI, I know you were very concerned that there wasn't an impact assessment carried out, despite that being a possibility. So is it enough to have good aspirations? How do we ensure that they happen in practice?
3: Well, as far as I know, this impact assessment will be provided. So this is not the, we, we just uh, uh, mentioned that at the moment when the opinion was done, it was not available. Um, uh, I fully agree with what Sarah said about the impact assessment, but on the other hand, maybe uh, as a kind of joke, but uh, unfortunately true as well, I can say that the best uh, creators of such uh, impact assessments will be artificial intelligence entities, artificial intelligence systems will have the special systems that will write this uh, impact assessment the way that would be acceptable. So, um, there is a problem here, definitely because we can write the impact assessments, but they are not solution themselves. They are only the transparency, um, the transparency tool that may help us to deal with the subject, but not necessarily the solution of the problem. Unfortunately, the solution is not also the certification. There is, once again, the problem which we will face in few years, the bigger difference between the expectations of the users but also the business and also the individual persons that if they see the certification sign, the the seal, which is attached to some system, then they uh, they can trust the system. And at the same time, the normal, common understanding that the more flexible is the system, the more flexible is the connection of different algorithms which are used in the system, the less is possible to uh, make the certification, because certification, even the best done, is done for the day today, and tomorrow with the changes uh, of the system and changes of the algorithms uh, which are in use, uh, the system may actually produce completely different uh, solutions. So, uh, I'm not saying that to, to say that there is no way out, but just let's not believe in silver bullets, neither the impact assessment nor certification will solve the problem that we have to understand what is going on on different levels, understand, be able to enforce and be able to say no at the moment when we are not ready to to, uh, take the real control over the tools that we create.
0: Well, uh, you're painting a a little bit of a dystopian image there of the future with the uh, AIs writing their own assessments of themselves. So let me turn to you, Alejandro. Um, Kranzberg's first law says, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. So let me put on my devil's advocate's hat again here and say, ask whether we're trying to blame technology for cultural shortcomings. Um, are we right to, to try and do that? Or perhaps if we're creating AI in our own image, it's not artificial intelligence we're creating, but artificial stupidity. Is it right to put all the pressure on the tech, or should we be looking at broader solutions? Explain not to me really, why technology not... is the is the problem here.
2: <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. I don't think we should blame just the technology. Uh, it's also the the decisions that um, us as society uh, decide to, to 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 make use of it for for, for the specific uh, for it's a specific um, uh, circumstance or situation. So it's up to us to decide where we allow AI uh, to be used. Uh, And do we want to either take the risk, high risk, low risk, to use AI in that specific uh, domain or that specific uh, use? I mean, at the end of the day, what AI um, pursues is uh, to maximize results and to be more efficient. So, do we want to, you know, uh, put all the efforts in ensuring that um, um, recruitment, uh, access to education, access to uh, to, to public services is as um, cost-efficient and uh, we put all the, 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 the tools uh, at, at the disposal of this only and very important objective. This is a human decision that, that we as societies uh, are making. And from the EDF perspective in this regard, for example, we, we do want to, uh, to expand the, the list of the, the use of AI, including the AI Act, uh, to other uh, uses that are considered by the proposal as high risk because we see that always uh, in in among our community um, we are uh, the, the the use of these kind of technologies is detrimental uh, for us and in that case we uh, would um, support the inclusion of the, in this list of prohibition, not only the biometric identification, but also the biometric cate- categorization, the um, uh, determination of, uh, of I- individuals' access to, to education, you know, recruitment um, and, and those access services. So anything related to the people's opportunities to access essential services um we consider that uh, ai should not be used in this in this regard maybe this is a a, a very bold and very strong uh, opposition to the use of um of this specific technology here but in the case of recruitment for example we've seen in many cases that ai-based tools for recruitment um are openly and actively discriminating against persons with disabilities, and uh, we in Europe have the employment we have the employment equality directive that prohibits inc- uh, discrimination uh, in the area of employment. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, such anti discrimination directive for other grounds. Uh, but in this case, I mean, it's a it's a human decision, and uh, our position in this regard is not to use not to allow the use of AI in this uh, in this key. Domains.
0: Brando, let me uh, come back to you. You used a phrase I very much liked in your, in your opening comments the chain of responsibility. So let's have a look at one of the links in the chain. I would like to get your perspective on private companies or corporations and, and how much involvement they are having in shaping the AI Act and whether or not it's going to become to them perhaps a cost of doing business and that, therefore, enforcement may be difficult further down the line?
4: Well, I think we we need to be realistic. Obviously, we need to um, have a cooperation of the uh, businesses also for the um, act to work. But it will be crucial that the authorities... That need to do market surveillance will be given enough resources to um, uh, be able to uh, check what's happening uh, in the certification process, in uh, the actual usage of the AI in uh, in our uh, common market, and so um, it will be um, important to also have involvement of civil society like the the ones the organizations that are involved in the debate of today to monitor um the uh development of the ai ecosystem i think it will be um crucial that we have also enough human resources devoted to this in the involved uh, public administrations and authorities um this sounds obvious but it's not that there is uh, there needs to be enough investment so that we have people with the necessary competences to to deal with uh, with uh, what they they will need to do um, to uh, provide uh, redress for um, consumers and citizens, um, and also to have a, a constant exchange with the, uh, between the public institutions and the civil society that has been active on uh, monitoring uh, the development of AI, especially in respect to fundamental rights. We cannot uh, risk that we uh, ruin uh, lives of people and we find out uh, only too late, because it's true that also humans uh, make errors and discriminate, but um, when it is a AI algorithm, this uh, error, and this discrimination can be multiplied uh, to a, a very large scale. So we need to, to, um, to work in this sense.
0: Thank you. Sarah, you, you mentioned in your, in your opening comments as well that um, a lot of tools and surveillance tools are tested on minority or discriminated against groups. But let's uh, look at the flip side where, for example, these groups are actually left out of some of the decision-making process. For example, I was told a story recently about the racist tap, um, the faucet, uh, because it was a a sensor and they tested it and it worked perfectly well with all the engineers in the office. Um, But then when a black person used it, it didn't recognize darker skin because no one had thought that it should maybe be tested and checked whether it was useful for uh, everyone. If you look around Brussels, it's fair to say that the policymakers are a fairly homogenous group that are not very diverse. How do we get more voices into something like the AI Act at this late stage?
1: A yeah, great question. I think really about getting voices in, there's two ways. So one is, okay, how do we, from across the political spectrum, make sure that negotiators, MEPs and members of all the different EU institutions are talking variety of civil society actors but also people directly affected exactly as we've tried to do with the conference here today. That's just a fact and needs to needs to happen, not just in the creation of the law, but also in the standardization process, which we us will see will have a very big role in the implementation of the AI Act um, and also in a broader policy conversation about technology and digital rights in general. That's the first thing. The second thing is okay so when we're talking about uh, to your point, Jennifer, about testing, the AI Act does give some opening. so we've we've talked about facial recognition systems. they have a number of potentially discriminatory um, sort of consequences or other types of identification system having discriminatory consequences if they're used in certain contexts. The AI act does um, to some extent give some sort of solutions in terms of debiasing those technologies, right? So we have. Uh, earlier, we heard from Yasin Slam, who works, uh, who previously sort of worked for Uber and sort of supporting uh, drivers, and he talked about the fact that a driver was deactivated from accessing that system uh, simply because the technology couldn't identify him. Those sorts of technologies, um, not when they're used in the public space, but when they're used in other access to services, are kind of like de- de- uh, categorized as high risk, and sort of the, the AI Act okay, they need to be properly tested with a representative group of people, including people of colour. That's fair enough. However, back to the question of use, if we really want to sort of reflect the sort of harms that are impacting the most marginalised in society, what we have to do, and that, this is I'm sorry, absolutely crucial, is need to set out a framework, a comprehensive framework of all of the illegitimate and most harmful uses that are out there beyond what is currently in the act, see the discriminatory impact, not just in how they're tested, but in terms of how they are used and set the right red lines in terms of prohibitions. And what do we mean by that? What types of systems are we talking about? Uh, We've talked about uh, facial recognition in the public space. Uh, it's a very strong and unified um, argument um, from civil society and also outlined in the Reclaim Your Face campaign, which my colleagues have been really beautifully leading, to say that there should be a full ban without exceptions on facial recognition and other biometric systems in the public space. And we've seen that echoed by a number of the negotiators here today. Equally, in terms of predictive policing systems, we've heard from people affected that actually they have no use They are basically predicting our activity before it even happens, challenging the presumption of innocence. And they are inherently racially discriminatory. They are discriminatory against uh, people with disabilities and of course, working class people. This also needs to be, we need to set the limits there. And equally, but without me having the time to go into it, uh, as Alejandro mentioned, emotion recognition systems need to be in that debate around prohibited practices, biometric categorization systems, and as we've outlined, a number of risk profiling systems in the migration sphere. And I would say also to add to that conversation, predictive analytics, especially when they're used to sort of prevent or combat this uh, in a criminal way, this issue of irregular migration which in many cases, I would say, poses a particular threat to the right to asylum, which we're seeing continuously attacked today, especially uh, in in many uh, cases of war across the world. So all of these things to say is we really want to include people in the debate, especially marginalized groups. We need to, number one, talk to them, but also we need to prioritize, first and foremost, how do we combat and how do we prevent the harms that are most likely to to, uh, infringe on their rights?
0: Well, we have a comment uh, on, on our chat, and I will remind the audience, of course, to please do use that to put your questions to our panelists. Jerry Ellis has said that the AI Act should not just cover AI tools, products, and services, but the products and services to which they are gateways. So I think this is looking at the, the, the trickle-down effect um, from the AI tools themselves. And I think that feeds in a little bit, Sarah, to what you were saying about where a technology is used as well as how it's used. And I'd, I'd very much, Alejandro, like your take on this, because, uh, for example, you mentioned the, uh, the bias in pre-screening CVs. But it may, it may be that if we looked further along the line, there would have been points where uh, this harm could have been headed off at the pass, as it were.
2: How? What would you mean?
0: Uh, what I mean is, if you've got the CVs and you've got you're setting up your AI system to screen them, you might want to look at what the metrics you're using are. So that if it's if you're asking the right questions and framing the debate in the right way of of, of what sort of a person you're looking for, you might end up with better results rather than simply the tool itself being the problem
2: yeah yeah no definitely i mean the, the the patterns you you decide uh should determine also the the outcome that you that you get but in any case what is very difficult is to gather um uh so diverse um, uh, potential uh uh um, aspects that will define this 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 uh this outcome of this model that will, will lead to selecting this CV and this, not, uh, the, this other it will be um, disregarded. So uh, I, I find that sometimes it's, it's quite difficult to, to comprehend in an AI system the full diversity of, uh, of, of human beings. And it, that's that's the talenting uh, that's the talent there for the for the tech industry, obviously, and for 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 the legislators now to decide uh, on the AI Act, of course, because uh, this uh, this. Uh, this problematic is also causing that, uh, as, as I mentioned, that like many, many times the deficiency comes first and then you know there is the equal opportunities and, and fairness and so forth, which in the end, as we mentioned before, fairness is never ensured by, by even a single person, but, um, but uh, obviously not in the, in the algorithm that humans have designed as well. And what the, the comment from, from I believe, Jerry Ellis, said, I think it's very important and relates very much with one of our core uh, objectives in in the in the work around the AI Act, which is accessibility. Because uh, if we think of um, the Commission, actually included accessibility as a voluntary um, thing that you can do for low-risk AI but um, that's definitely not the, the, the approach and the mainstream and that we, we expected. And now we, we've sign, finally seen in other uh, legislation in the um, digital ID regulation, they did, in this case, the Commission, I mean, they did mainstream accessibility there and they referred to the European Accessibility Act, so uh, from our view, uh, the, all the digital files should refer to the Accessibility Act uh, requirements to ensure legal coherence that the tech industry knows what level of accessibility uh, they should comply with. And in the case of AI, this is particularly important for IoT products, you know, uh, or even if you think of uh, self-driving cars as well. So all these uh, products that use AI um, uh, should Take into account a, a, at least a minimum level of accessibility requirements that ensure that not only uh, persons with disabilities can can use it, but also those as well who may uh, use these technologies with the, with assistive technology, and also to prevent potential. Uh, unintended consequences Uh, think of for example virtual assistants and people with speech disabilities for example uh, the complexity that these systems have to operate and so forth so these all of all of these are considerations that humans make in the design of the systems and the products that make use of these systems that should take into account accessibility and for that we are very clear to the with the, the allies in the european parliament and with the council that all these different uh, files, uh, the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, the AI Act, all of them, they should have the same level of accessibility as we have in in the European Accessibility Act.
0: Thank you. Uh, And indeed, uh, it's a point well made that it isn't simply about banning things or, or restricting things that we need to also make sure that things are opened up to those who will benefit from them. Um, Neil Heilgeger has asked a great question about transparency of the algorithm. Should the burden of proof be on the side of the business or the developer to prove that they do not discriminate? Um, it's, it's an interesting point. And check, where would you stand on that?
3: It's always a very tricky subject because uh, uh, we anyway have to remember that uh, we, we cannot treat the people who are de- who are uh, developing the AI system as the persons who are working against the humanity. So this is not this is not as easy that we are moving the the uh, the burden of proof uh, in uh, all the situations towards those uh, who are creating that. So there are definitely the problems of liability which are to be uh, assessed and probably that was the biggest problem of the uh, of the ai before the ai act was created uh, and the the draft was created uh, and not necessarily uh, the problems of uh, deciding about the certification schemes or or governance uh, models uh, uh, for for the for the all this uh, area so uh, i would not experiment too much i would first try to uh, set the principles and check how these principles are operating because uh, to change everything only because we think that we are meeting the, some dangerous, uh, uh, dangerous uh, technology is probably not the right uh, approach. However, as I said, there are the limits that should be clearly set in the Act and that's what the regulation is expected to be.
0: Thank you very much, Wojciech. Brando. I know you have to leave us uh very very shortly. Did you want to have a final word before we say farewell?
4: Well, I think that uh, um, that weed waters in the sense that we are trying to do something that it has not been done in the rest of the world just to have a really horizontal and encompassing legislation on ai so it will take not just legislation to get our human-centric model through we need to um, uh, have investment we need to have uh, uh, training we need to have uh, uh, adaptation of our cultural and learning models so um, it's a big challenge, but I'm sure that the, if we work together well, we can deliver for, in the interests of the citizens. Thank you very much, and see you all soon.
0: Thank you, Brando, and thank you for persevering despite some of the technical gremlins we've had today. We do appreciate your view. Um, Sarah, let me come back to you with that question uh, from Nick online asking about where the burden of proof should fall in terms of whether it should be on the business or developer to prove that their products or services do not, or their their algorithms in specific cases, do not discriminate?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the AI Act really tries to do that, exactly that, right? So it says uh, in the sort of list of re- requirements on providers, they have to show that they have at least examined all the possible biases that are, that are currently sort of that are currently embedded into that system, which is a good step forward. Um, in discrimination law, you have um, also the burden of proof to show not discriminating once, as like a sort of case, a prima facie case for discrimination has been made on the institutions or on sort of uh, users deploying or use, use like a uh, public authorities that are using certain practice. And I think the same principle should be put into place for companies or um, companies or public institutions that are using um, AI systems, especially high-risk AI systems, to prove that they're not discriminating. So this goes beyond the question of the technology developers, but also um, specifically who are using these high-risk technologies. Uh, The reason I say this is because in the AI Act, what we're trying to do is primarily regulate the technology developers. Now, this to some extent will maybe have some preventative uh, extent in a general sense to potential discrimination that might ensue for the development of a particular high risk technology. But technologies can be used in many, many different ways. Um, and the requirements currently on providers will not do enough to sort of understand those various different contexts, technologies, high risk technologies will be likely to be used in. This is exactly why, uh, going back to our question on obligations on users, we need two things. We need uh, the users to prove that they are not, uh, these systems that they want to deploy will not. Uh, arbitrarily discriminating against people will not disproportionately harm discriminated groups and any other types of people. And But also we need sort of some sort of accountability. If there is a risk of discrimination, what will they do to mitigate those harms? So to the point of the European Data Protection Supervisors earlier, actually, yeah, fundamental rights impact assessments are not the silver bullet, but they are a step on the way to accountability. Having that accountability sort of on the table, put in a public database somewhere, then allow sort of this chain of accountability of people or civil society organizations who want to see where there are particular risks, see that there are particular harms on the table, to then look at this and challenge them if need be. Which brings us to the very last sort of point that we haven't really discussed so much yet. There needs to be a framework in the Artificial Intelligence Act of rights and redress for people affected by high risk Uh, AI technologies. Currently, there aren't any individual rights of affected people in the act, and there should be. This is sort of the last sort of thread that isn't really explored. We have the obligations on providers. We have some acknowledgement of that there should be a limitation or a regulation on the use of high-risk AI technology, but we haven't got that framework yet for empowering people affected, and that needs to be the next step that negotiations should be exploring.
0: I want to follow on question to you, Sarah, um, from Lina from Novak, Spain. Um, I'm not sure whether you know, but has there been any link made between the AI Act and the EU directive proposal for business due diligence? Uh, Lina says it's very important to control the capacity of market-oriented companies and traceability should be done beyond EU borders. Uh, this, again, puts the onus, I suppose, back onto the, the business or the, or the manufacturers without really taking into account the context Do you think it's worth an area worth
1: exploring? It's a great question. So there is some overlap between the proposal of civil society to have a fundamental rights impact assessment on high risk AI and the sort of ongoing proposals in due diligence to say that there should be impact for companies in general. Um, It's a quite a technical question, but actually where we see that they don't overlap is that uh, the AI Act covers many types of actors, so not just um, not just companies, but also public institutions that are looking to implement high-risk AI, that could potentially have a discriminatory effect. That's one distinction. And then the second distinction is that the fundamental rights impact assessment wouldn't be in general uh, for the operating of an entire public institution vis-a-vis technology. It would be for a specific use case. So for example, I would, if I were a public authority, I would be required to do this type of impact assessment. Um, before I would be develop, deploying a particular system, say if I wanted to implement a system that um, sort of analyzes and assesses people for their eligibility for social welfare, I would rec- be required at that point of before specific deployment of that system to do this exercise. And that's the difference between the due diligence so proposals and this fundamental rights impact assessment proposal. Thank you for that. Um- Alessandro, to pick up
0: on Sarah's point about redress. Um, Obviously, if you feel that the AI has been wrongly used against you, the right of redress becomes hugely important. But for those with disabilities, they may, for various reasons uh, that are well-documented, find it even more difficult to get redress. It's not at the hands of the average citizen, but it may be even further. So they will be discriminated, doubly discriminated against. Um, What do you think could be done to make redress within the act a fundamental and easily achievable goal
2: yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question um, first of all i believe the 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 way to 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 seek redress uh, in addition um, in addition to being uh, accessible uh, in the format that you can you can raise your concern or or lots of complain it should also be easy to understand, and I think that's that's one of the uh, one of the main barriers that persons with disabilities um, and older people as well uh, face when using technology. Uh, the difficulty in understanding uh, the process, the terminology, uh, how to proceed, and so forth. So, uh, if we think of uh, such a complex issue as you know, feeling that you've been discriminated by uh, an algorithm or by a, a, an automatic decision, uh, how would you uh, proceed to you know to seek uh, remedies and? Uh, in this case uh, we believe that uh, the ai act should also should also provide for the possibility not, not only to 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 lodge complaints individually but also to to ensure that there is uh, the possibility to to do collective complaints like class actions that organizations supporting persons with disabilities or organizations of persons with disabilities can collectively uh, take action if, if needed before the authorities that are established for, for that reason. But definitely the, the accessibility of the process, of this process, the understandability of it, and the possibility to, to do it collectively, I think these are three elements that we should take into account during the legislative process.
0: Wojciech, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, well redress um, and also perhaps bring in the idea about the exceptions that are foreseen already within the Act and how they would effectively remove that possibility of redress.
3: Um, let's start from general remark that uh, the, the, uh, we have to bear in mind all the kind of redresses that we already have. So, of course, as a data protection authority, I would say that adding uh, any additional system of redress to the ones which exist at the moment in the general data protection regulation mm, will not do anything good. It it will actually even complicate the situation that we have at the moment. Uh, I think that most of the uh, solutions that are right now uh, proposed uh, for uh, AI uh, exist already in GDPR for these data protection issues, for personal data protection issues. But if you go out of that, and we think about the um, general governance of uh, uh, artificial intelligence that may help to get the real redress, uh, then I'm very happy that I'm the data protection authority of the EU institutions, bodies and agencies, and I have 70 institutions uh, that uh, I have to deal with, uh, because if I was the data protection authority on the national level, and there would be the idea to, to give the right to uh, issued decisions guidelines certification and etcetera uh, to this uh, uh, um, to this uh, entity on the national level i would be really stressed and really horrified at the same time i know that the court redress the redress which is done only to judicial uh, system will not be easy either so that that's uh, th- that is the challenge which we didn't uh, really met uh, met so far in the uh, proposals given either by the Council nor by the uh, Parliament. And exceptions? Well, I especially mean the uh, so-called pure scientific use uh, and uh, so-called general uh, general AI, uh, general purpose AI. Uh, Well, I really have the big problem to find out where this general use is going to be finished so I think any exceptions of this kind, which are done, uh, are rather counterproductive. Uh, they will create the, the systems which will be hiding simply over the the these exceptions. And the the same is unfortunately for the uh, pure scientific use. Uh, I really don't know what does this pure scientific use may mean in this uh, in, in this world. So uh, let's be careful with exceptions. On the other hand, I can understand that exceptions may exist, but they should be narrowly defined. Narrowly defined. So even when I said that there might be possibility to have the exceptions for the use of the biometric uh, uh, remote recognition in the public, uh, the uh, accessible areas, well, I can find the narrow exceptions, but then this data should be used only for this very defined uh, purpose.
0: Well, and we should say it's not just the EU institutions, of course, that the EDPS has responsibility for, but also Europol. Uh, it's been in the headlines quite a lot lately. The so <laughs> an institution, but beyond it's an agency, but obviously one where there's a lot of these sensitive subjects coming up in terms of the personal use of data. Sarah, where do you stand on the question of redress? What Jake is saying, don't make it more complicated. And in that, he certainly has a point because it is a little bit beyond the reach of of the average citizen in terms of, for example, what we've seen with the GDPR.
1: It's a great question. I think the crux of the concern of many people will be how it's a general question of enforcement, uh, which we have with many uh, digital uh, pieces of legislation happening. So we have uh, the ideal that needs to happen to empower people. And then we have a question of enforcement, like how can the right, who would be the body that we receives complaints um, particularly? And that's a key question that I think legislators really need to deal with. However, I don't think that it, um, sort of prevents the need that there is an um there are potential set of uh sort of consequences that the ai act brings for individuals affected individuals but it doesn't provide a way for individuals to be involved in this process as alejandro rightly outlined so for example take take the case of a social scoring system which is banned under the under the act however I, for whatever reason, have found out that I'm subject to the use of those systems despite that it's being banned. What rights do I have to enforce this ban? Currently, that doesn't exist. What we are saying is that there needs to be a right uh, not to be subject to prohibited or uncompliant AI practices that the AI Act already outlines. And there needs to be a way um, that I, as an individual or as, as a collective, can address this. Uh, looking for some of the most successful pieces of legislation that we've had, we see how the individual, um, these pieces of legislation sort of co-opt the citizenry into enforcement of these pieces of legislation. And that can be presenting problems for enforcement. It can raise questions of resources, but it's also the sort of the pillar of sort of like Democratic involvement in digital, digital, digital legislation. So I, I wouldn't push away this question of redress. I think it's actually very key, and especially if we're taking the fundamental rights uh, perspective. Beyond what is uncovered in the GDPR, there are a number of ways that our fundamental rights can be harmed by the use of AI that actually we don't have sufficient uh, redress uh, to be accounted for. So this has to be really key issue, and how to involve the individual, involve affected groups, involve discriminated people in the enforcement of the act, I think um, we need to pay attention of and we do not. Need, we, we should not brush away.
0: I'm, I'm also interested that we've only got five minutes left and I don't want to open a whole new can of worms at this point, but what very briefly would effective redress look like? It Is, is, it, uh, is it monetary redress? Is it undoing the harms? Because in many cases, those harms may not Possible to be undone? Um, is it an apology? I mean, th- these are the sorts of questions that I think perhaps if we had them in the Act to stop the problem before they started, it would be uh, it would be beneficial. Um, Alejandro, give me your brief thoughts on that as well as a kind of wrapping up comment.
2: Well, I guess uh, it really depends on the case, uh, right? So we we cannot generalize and say that. Uh, that all of them should have X, Y, and Z. I guess we we need to look at the the context in which the discrimination has happened, and um, just to um, just to wrap up, maybe uh, to maybe uh, stress again what we've been. Um, uh, calling uh, in this uh, in this regulation is basically to 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 guarantee that uh, everybody will have the you know the right not to be discriminated against by, by by AI and in that case I just wanted briefly to to mention that in the case of you know protecting the privacy of the of of people of individuals in this case which may may be from some of our members pointed out uh, a flaw of the GDPR also people under um, substitution substitution uh, substitute oh uh, substitute oh uh, uh, under a total or partial guardianship i'm very sorry about <laughs> i couldn't uh substitutive decision-making regime, exactly. So, meaning those who are under guardianship uh, that do have also the right to uh, lodge complaints to protect their privacy when they feel that they've been discriminated. This is obviously uh, fundamental for those uh, persons with disabilities, particularly those with intellectual or psychosocial disabilities. And then again, the point on ensuring that the artificial intelligence will incorporate um, accessibility as a core aspect along with privacy and and, and the other. Uh, objectives that we've been uh, discussing today thank you
0: thank you thank you very much alejandro and thank you for jumping in at the last minute onto this panel wachek a very very short wrap-up word from you any key thoughts you want to leave us with
3: Uh, i would stress what sana said before about the importance of uh, uh, thinking about the use of the technology not uh, the the technology itself Uh, and uh, the, the, also the definition of the user, because we are saying uh, uh, on users, but we are defining them at the same time as those who use the, the deployed technologies, but also those who are the, effect, who are the, the subjects of uh, uh, pro- uh, processing uh, of the data. So uh, let's be clear and let's be innovative, but let's uh, remember that we are touching very, very uh, delicate subjects.
0: Thank you, Wojciech, And Sarah, the unenviable task of going last without repeating everything everyone else has said. What's your key message? I'm sure there will be policymakers watching this. What do you want to see?
1: I think really what we've seen today in this whole conference is that we currently see AI systems are being used in the service of power, in the service of discrimination, in the service of oppression. But actually what we really want to see is AI in the service of the people. And in order to do that, um, as we've all discussed today, we need the right prohibitions. We need a flexible enough AI Act. We need obligations on those using harmful technologies and obligations to prevent discrimination and harm. And also we need a way for individuals to be involved in this process and for them to be empowered. And these four things are really, I I would hope, um, sum up some uh, some of the sort of points raised today by our speakers, but also uh, the priorities for policymakers going forward. Well, thank you very much to all our panellists,
0: both for this, our final panel, and also during the day, focusing in on the different issues, but all with that same unifying theme of imbalances of power and where AI sits within that. I'm going to hand over the floor now for closing to Claire Fernandez, the executive director of European Digital Rights Group (EDRi), who, of course, is one of the organisers of today's event. Claire, I hope you have been informed, engaged, and really got to find a little bit more of nuance and levels in our different panels today, uh, because we tried to break them out. And I had think to say. We had excellent speakers, I'm sure you would agree with me there, but I leave it to you to draw those threads together um, and send us home with a message. Uh, we can't hear you. Should <laughs> I again? Are you on mute? there. Can you hear me? Give me a nod if you can hear me. You can hear me, but we can't hear you. What we'll do is let's take a brief break for the video that we were going to show and then we'll come back to you, Claire, and get your closing remarks after the video. Well, there was a video on the reclaim your face campaign that is being spearheaded by edry claire now i think we're back and all working well
5: okay you can hear me now yes we can okay. great <laughs> okay thanks um yeah I, as i was saying thank you so much and i i did follow and enjoy really much the day. so i want to really thank all our speakers including our policymakers for spending the time today to discuss uh, AI risk, but really from the discrimination point of view. And uh, today's event was really one of a kind in the the type of uh, EU policy Brussels type of discussions we hear, where we really try to hear from people affected by discrimination, exclusion and marginalization, by centering their experience, not just in shaping the agenda of today's event, I hope that was, that was apparent, but also uh, shaping directly the way this act that will affect uh, their life is being made. And I really hope that what we've heard today will show the vital needs to make adjustment to the AI Act. And what have we heard? I don't know if we answered uh, today's uh, questions as whether uh, the AI act can fix uh, inequalities, but I think what was clear is that AI system can compound and reinforce existing uh, societal uh, inequalities, structural discrimination, and and, and harms. Um, and we've heard by people directly affected by the system, what I think Petra has called you know, the testing grounds of, of these systems. Uh, racialized groups, uh, mothers of young children of colors, we've heard from people on the move, undocumented migrants, persons with disabilities, uh, precarious workers and working class and it was really uh, compelling to me to hear like Diana's uh, uh, testimonies about how children stand no chance in front of these robots and systems or how Yassine mentioned about how these this systems can destroy people's life and workers, um, platform workers life. I thought it was really interesting to hear so from Alejandro uh, what kind of accessibility requirement from persons with disabilities are needed and, and, and are needed in these um, discussions. So, what this experience and and testimonies shows are points to three clear avenues which were repeated in the last panels uh, in the AI Act. First, it's clear that we need a, a greater um, centering accountability for the deployers of AI. Uh, fundamental rights impact assessment for all high risks of AI are clearly important, right? Not not just thinking about the people making those systems, but the institutions, the users uh, using this, these systems. Second, we need clear empowerment for the people affected by AI, not just from a data protection point of view, but there should be clearly and needs to for people affected by these systems and their rights to know that they have been the subject of AI systems and to have clear and accessible tools to complain and to challenge them. And then finally we need a comprehensive approach to the prohibitions of, of uh, unacceptable uses of ai right with no exemptions otherwise we empty the whole protections uh, including the ai act and i think some of this uh, unacceptable use have been very well described today whether it's uh, remote biometric identifications in public spaces whether it's predictive policing emotion recognition, and uh, all uses throughout the migration control chain. So um, I really hope that this event can inform the rest of the negotiations in the Act and that we will continue amplifying amplify those voices and centering uh, people's needs in the AAA Act. Um, And I really want to finish by thanking all the organizers, in particular, uh, Sarah Chander from EDRI, and uh, Pamela Valenti from OCP, and of course, you, Jen, and the whole uh, EurActive team. So thank you very much for for making this possible, and uh, thank you all for listening.
0: Absolutely, Clara. Thank you indeed to our audience for your engagement, for your questions and your attention today. It's a complex subject with many moving parts and one that's difficult to talk about when it's still in flux, but that means that now is the key turning point to maybe get some of those redress mechanisms, some of those safeguards in place so that we can help the most disadvantaged in society from becoming even more marginalized, which is, of course, the unifying aim of everyone who's been talking here today. So thank you for that. Keep up the great work Uh, for our organizers. We know that you've got a lot of work ahead of you and we appreciate today everyone taking the time to talk about this in the public sphere. So hopefully we can continue this conversation in the margins, online, with friends, with colleagues. Get everyone alerted to it because this is something we'll be watching closely in the weeks and months to come. And with that, thank you very much. Do stay with your active. We have many more events that you will find very engaging, very enjoyable, and hopefully you will be able to join us again soon. Have a great day.